Thank you for your donation to Carbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.carbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening, and welcome to this Bible study on the book of Revelation. Um, we, are, we are now looking at the prologue, which is essentially uh, starts in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 1, through, uh, verse 8. We've covered the first three verses last week. Um, last week there was a question about a reference in the book of Daniel and it is indeed uh, chapter 3 verse 28. So the reference that I gave you is correct at least in the um, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Uh, you'll find it uh, where I said it was. Tonight, we're going to look at the second part of the prologue. For those of you who are joining us uh, right now, I, I would like to let you know that uh, the study has been ongoing for about a year now, and it was all in preparation for entering the book. We've just started last week. There, are, there is a whole series of CDs that you can find that may help you understand our approach, and you can find it with Michael, who's in white right here. Uh, please do read the book of Revelation. I need you to, to read it at least once, even though you, you may not be able to understand everything, but please take the time. It won't take you long, about 40 minutes, to go through the whole book. Just go through it so you can at least have an idea of what is it that we're dealing with. Um, the last thing I'd like to mention to you is that um, it would be of great value if you took notes during the talks because it is extremely um, dense and the notes will help you remember and every talk builds on the previous ones so that you may not feel uh, lost taking notes will be extremely helpful for you as you listen to to these uh, to these talks so tonight we're going to start with the second part of the prologue essentially what I what I've already told you last time and the time before that as far as I can tell the book of Revelation is structured in the following manner there is first a section where the Lord is dealing with his church directly and it is about warnings and about um, judgment and about uh, consolation he is as a good father would talking to his children first and telling them shape up or else. The church 
in the time of John is dealing with much opposition from the world. Nothing has changed. And what the rest of the book is about is the Lord showing his church that he is dealing with the world as well. And he deals with the world in three phases. The first phase of warning, a second phase of chastisement, whose purpose it is to wake up the world so that they can convert, and the third phase of punishment. And then right after that, there is effectively the establishment of the reign of Christ in the world. In a nutshell, that's the structure of the book. It is decidedly Catholic in its outlook and its structure. And that's what I would like to show you. One last thing that I will say to you is that probably the book of Revelation is the book that quotes or makes allusions to the Old Testament more so than any other book in the, in the New Testament. So part of the difficulty with it is that we do not know the Bible enough or sufficiently so that we can really understand how, what, what John is saying. And by this I mean that he's going to use allusions. He will just pick a couple of words from, very, from passages from the Old Testament that were supposed to be known to his audience. And they would be able to react to it. But because we don't know it, it means nothing to us. So part of the, part of the challenge for all of, all of us is to recreate that context. And in it there is much blessing. Because let's not forget, at the end of the day, that scripture is, as St. Bernard says, the face of Jesus Christ. And to know scripture is to know Christ. So, with that, let us begin. Please open your Bibles to the first uh, chapter of the book of Revelation. And I'm going to start reading at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and a ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Those are the verses we are going to cover, or at least attempt to cover tonight. Again, this is taken from chapter 1, verse 4, through verse 8. So there are four verses that we're going to try and cover tonight. The first thing you will notice in this salutation is that it seems to be disjointed. John seems to be talking about whatever comes to his mind. There doesn't seem to be a logical structure to it. There is a salutation, grace and peace that is given, then there is this doxology, this glorification of Jesus, and then 
there is a statement about his coming with the clouds. And right after that, God answers and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That doesn't seem to be a clear structure. The first thing we need to do is adjust our way of approaching the text. If you approach this text the way you would a report written by someone on the field, giving you an analytical detail of what has happened, you're going to miss it. That's not the framework you have to have in, in the background of your mind. The proper framework to have in the background of your mind is, of course, the liturgy. You have to approach it the way you approach Mass. Because there's antiphonal responses going on here. There's like two parts of a choir singing different parts of this text. This is liturgical texts. This is not analytical text. This is not someone who's trying to tell you, hey, I've got a secret for you, let me tell you. That's not what he's doing here. So you need to adjust your views. The problem with adjusting our views this way is that it sounds a little bit disappointing. Because, I mean, after all, if it's just liturgy, so what's the point? That's one of our problems. We don't appreciate the liturgy for what it is. And hopefully through those four verses, things will start to shift. So let's begin. John to the seven churches, churches in the province of Asia. Those of you who read the book know that in the next section, the Lord will speak to John. In fact, the Lord will speak to the angels of each of those seven churches. John has in mind seven specific churches which are in the province of Asia. The first thing we would like to note is that John is writing with authority. When he says John to the seven churches, he doesn't mean it as a text that I'm writing for you churches and you might want to take a look at it. This is someone who's writing with full authority, someone who is known by those churches and someone who can write in such a way that he knows what he's writing will be heard. That is apostolic writing. This is how Paul wrote. All right? He, it is clear that he is known from them, and we know from tradition there's a strong possibility that St. John was in Ephesus, one of those seven churches addressed in the book. So he was very well known by those provinces. Now, Asia, in this specific instance, refers to the Roman province that occupied the entire western portion of Asia Minor, basically Turkey. Stretching inland to the Anatolian Plateau, it is the area that represented the ancient kingdom of Pergamum, which was conquered by the Romans in 133 BC. This is an area where churches are, for the most part, well off because the cities they are in are well off. They are participators in the life of the empire and that, the Roman Empire, and that is going to create some interesting tensions we're going to address once we start going through the letters. But keep that in mind. He's writing to churches, many of which are wealthy. Not all, but many are wealthy. Well established. They are incorporated in the fabric of society. He's not writing to churches that are underground and hiding. Now, there is, though, another aspect to the seven churches. 
And you know by now the importance of the number seven. I need not repeat it again. Saint Severinus, in his commentary on the Apocalypse, states the following. In the whole world, Paul taught that all the churches are arranged by sevens, that they're called seven, and that the Catholic Church is one. And first of all, indeed, that he himself also might maintain the type of seven churches, he did not exceed that number. But he wrote to the Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians. Seven. Afterwards, he wrote to individual persons so as not to exceed the number of seven churches. So you see, this number is not something that is only specific to John. It is part of the makeup of the thinking of the early church. Paul wrote to seven churches. St. John is addressing seven churches. What is the implication? The implication is that, number one, on the literal sense, those are the churches that he has in mind. But the, on the anagogical sense, the sense that applies to the church and the end times, those letters are addressed to the entire Catholic Church. Therefore, they are as meaningful today as they were back then. We need to keep that in mind. However, we must capture the meaning back then for us to understand them properly today. There is another interesting point that any... Christian of a Jewish background would notice, at least would come to mind. Seven churches in contradistinction to one temple. In a Jewish religion, you only had one temple, one place of sacrifice. Here you have seven churches. So, from a, even from a psychological point of view, there's a really interesting shift. You no longer have to be associated with the temple. To sacrifice. You can sacrifice anywhere. You can see the movement from the old covenant that is addressed to the people of Israel to the new covenant that is addressed to the world. If there are seven churches, then there are seven altars, one per church. The only other place where seven altars are mentioned is in the book of Numbers chapter 23. And the book of Numbers, chapter 23, is a very important chapter of book of Numbers. It isn't any other chapter. In this book, Balak, who is opposed to Israel, he is the worldly force opposed to Israel, call upon Balaam, the prophet. Balaam was a prophet of God, and Balak is trying to hire him so that he can pronounce curses on Israel. And Balaam comes up and says, he basically accepts, which of course a prophet should never do. He's misusing the, gift, the prophetic gift that God gave him for monetary gains. That's going to be very important. You'll see why in a minute. He comes up and then he tells Balak, build me seven altars and I'll offer seven rams. He does it once, and he prophesies. And when he prophesies, the prophecy that comes out is a blessing on Israel. He does it a second times. He does it a third times. He does it a fourth time. And every single time, the blessing on Israel is increasing. And it culminates with that blessing, which is a prophecy about Christ, where he speaks of his coming, and he speaks of the start of David. 
That is in the backdrop of what we're dealing with here because during John's time, the church was facing a very similar situation. The church is in Exodus. It is in the world. The church is facing opposition from the world, without and within. So the notion of seven churches writing to seven churches and seven altars from someone who is, off, who is coming up with a prophecy suggests right away a very strong blessing. That would be the kind of thought that would come through a Christian of Jewish background. John to the seven churches, grace and peace. Grace and peace. This salutation is found in all Pauline letters. It always starts like this, grace and peace. Mercy is added in 1 Timothy 1.2 and 2 Timothy 1.2. But typically it is grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is a divine favor showed to the human race. And peace is that state of spiritual well-being that derives from grace. So grace is God showing favor. And when God shows favor, he extends to us his own being. And that gives us a sense of existence. And when we have that, we are in peace. We are, we have peace. Peace is not the lack of violence or lack of war. Peace is not material well-being. You can have material well-being. You can live in a country where there are no wars. You can have your entire, your, you can be healthy and you don't have peace inside. You're in turmoil because you are away from the Prince of Peace who can only give you peace through His grace. Now, let me ask you a very simple question. How is grace propagated? How is grace given to us? How does God grace us? Prayer, sacrifice, yes. Church, the sacraments liturgy. We're back to Mass. That's how God gives us grace and peace. It is through the Mass. No other way. No other way. That's what we need to realize. No liturgy, no grace. No liturgy, no peace. That's the fundamental message of this book. Grace and peace is also an apostolic salutation. Only those who have received power from Christ can bestow grace and peace. This is not a wish on the part of St. John. He's not wishing grace and peace. He's bestowing grace and peace. You know the difference between the two? At the end of the Mass, for instance, you hear the priest say what? Right before the, 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 the dismissal. And may what? May God bless you. Is he wishing for God's blessing on you? Is that what he's doing? He's wishing that God bless you? Is he making a prayer? No. He is effectively bestowing God's blessing on you. Likewise, in, in when you go to, to confession, at the end of the confession, what does the priest say? And I absolve you. He doesn't say, and I forgive you. You didn't do anything personal to him, hopefully, for him to have to forgive you. He absolves you. By what power? By apostolic power. 
That's what you have here. John is not wishing grace and peace. He's imparting grace and peace on the churches. Right? That's what he's doing. That's effectively the whole content of the book. Grace and peace. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. You know that as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, you never say the name of the Lord. You never pronounce the name of God, Yahweh. You never say that name. John is of Hebrew background. You know that only the high priest will pronounce the name of God when he enters the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and he pronounces the name. That's the only time ever the name is pronounced. So John, likewise, is not going to say from Yahweh. But what he does is that he makes a variation on the name. What is Yahweh? I am that I am. I am the being one. That's what God said his name was to Moses. That's my name. So what does he do? He does a variation on that. From him who is, who was. The interesting thing is that when you read some of the Midrash or you need some of the Jewish commentaries, you will see that they make the same kind of variation, but they will say, to him who was, who is, and will be, asserting God's eternal, subsistent existence. But John does something slightly different. From him who is, who was, and who is to come. That's important. The who is to come. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. He would have said from him who was, who is, and will be, and we will understand from God. That's what he's saying. It's a Hebraic way of saying the name of God without saying it. But because he said from him who is, who was, and who is to come, his emphasis is on the come. And we're going to get to that in a minute. What he wants to do here is, is that he wants to make sure that everybody understands God's embracing authority over the entire course of history. Nothing escapes his authority. There may be also a second reason for this title, although it is difficult to assert that St. John was aware of it. Um, in the Song of the Doves at Dodona, which is a, uh, a, um, a pagan song, to, the, to, to Zeus, we read the following, Zeus who was, Zeus who is, and Zeus who will be. So it is entirely possible that St. John is using that expression also to remind his readers of Greek background of the true God. It is possible, though not necessary. We don't need that reference to explain it, but it is entirely possible that he may have done that. and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, you know that in that salutation we have grace and peace from him who was, who is, was to come, and, then, and from Jesus Christ. And the seven spirits are sandwiched in between. So obviously when you look at it at this way, you know you have God the Father, you have God the Son, what do you got in the middle? It's got to be the Holy Spirit. Seven, again, is a sign of totality. So, Perfection. 
just as we said, the seven churches is a way of saying the, the whole church, the seven spirits, is a way of saying the Holy Spirit. But there must be, right now, an obvious question. If that's the case, why didn't St. John say the Holy Spirit? We could understand why he said the seven churches, because he was addressing seven particular churches. But if it is indeed that the, the seven spirits represent, or are a way of talking about the Holy Spirit, why didn't he just say the Holy Spirit? There aren't, after all, seven Holy Spirits he's trying to address particularly, are they? The second related question is that you'd notice the order is out of line with the traditional salutation. The tradi traditional salutation is grace and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've learned that as we grew up. He inverts it, and he has the Holy Spirit in the middle, and then the Son. Why? This is the kind of questions we've got to ask ourselves if we are to understand what he has in mind. Because any of, that, any of those thoughts that come to us which provoke in us those questions mean that there is a distance. There's a dissonance between our view of the world and St. John's view of the world. We, we need to enter into his head, so to speak. The way to do that is to, again, remember where he comes from. Where does he come from? He comes from a Jewish background. A Jewish background centered around Jerusalem, and in particular, the temple. How was the temple organized? The Holy of Holies, where you had the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, representing what? What does the mercy seat represent? The throne of God. That's what it represents. Outside of the Holy of Holies, what did you have? You have the altar of incense and the seven candles, the lampstand with seven branches. Right? And outside of the Holy of Holies, what do you have? You had the big sacrificial altar. That's what they offered sacrifices. Alright, now if you follow the order of the salutation, what do you get? Grace and peace to you from him, from him who is, who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and hath freed us from our sins by his blood. What is the focus here? The focus is on the priestly and salvific work of Jesus Christ, both as priest and victim. So in the mind of John, where is Jesus standing? By the sacrificial altar. You see? The reason why this, the salutation is structured this way, because it is liturgical. It is structured according to the liturgy of the temple. That's why the salutation is structured this way. So when John is saying those words, what he has in mind is specifically the liturgy and the graces flowing from the throne of God through the Holy Spirit, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, Fiorenza, who, he, who is a, uh, a theologian, points out that St. John may be also using an ancient baptismal formula. That in the ancient church, the way they were baptizing people were using that, kind, that formula. So that's kind of an interesting uh, highlight as well. 
because, because of the importance of baptism and the way baptism will play a role here. Another point to make about the seven uh, spirits is, is the text of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 2 and following, where, where Isaiah speaks of the Spirit of the Lord with its seven manifold gifts. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. So the gift of the Holy Spirit is something also that John may have in mind by saying it this way. I will, I will also add one more thing. The lampstand, as we've seen when we studied the temple, is also applied to Christ. And that highlights a very important principle in trying to understand Scripture. There is liberty in images. We can't ascribe one meaning to one image and then, and then fix it. It doesn't work this way. As an example, consider the usage of the word foundation by St. Paul. In in Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, St. Paul says that according to the grace of God given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But each one must be careful how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is there, namely Jesus Christ. So the foundation, obviously, is Jesus Christ. You have no other foundation but Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Yet, if you now go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, you read, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but your fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the capstone. Well, Jesus is the foundation. Apostles and prophets the foundation. Which is it? Well, it's both. There is liberty in metaphor. We cannot just so fix them that they mean one thing and, the other, and only one thing. We have to be careful with that. I'm mentioning this because oftentimes you may have a, um, a Protestant brother or sister who may come to you and may quote one verse with one image, such as the one I quoted to you. It says, Christ is the foundation. How can you say Peter is the foundation? Paul says it clearly, only Christ is the foundation. Well, no, he doesn't. He says in Corinthians, but in Ephesians, he says something else. So keep that in mind. Throne. So, why am I saying throne? It's because in the text that I just read to you, from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, it is important to, to think about that for a second. He doesn't say from the seven spirits before his altar, but before his throne. I'd like to point out to you that this word occurs no less than 46 times in the book of Revelation. 46 times John will speak of the throne of God. 46 times. Do you think that this is an important idea? I think so. What, what does the throne represent? Why is it important? Because in scripture, the word throne is used to refer to God's official court, where he receives official worship from his people on the Sabbath. That's what throne stands for in Scripture. Now, what is the meaning of the word liturgy? Literally, what does liturgy mean? Almost. Public worship, you're close. Pardon? Work of the people, you're close. No. Public service. Public 
service. You've heard, in fact, many Protestants refer to what they do on Sunday, not as Mass, but as what? Service. That's where they get it from. The liturgy is public service. Not private, public. It is the official worship given to God by His people as King. It is that moment where the court of the Lord is opened for people to come and make their petition heard. The image of a king is not a, an abstract idea. It is very concrete and real. God must be approached as king, especially during the public worship. This is where matters of importance are resolved. This is where the king renders judgment. This is where decisions are taken. It is public service. Liturgy is also public service in a second meaning. It is through the liturgy that you render service to the world. So, effectively, the moral fabric of our world, the world we live in, is knit in such a way that it starts at the throne of God. From it, it flows into the liturgy, and from the liturgy, it affects the world. That's how it's knit. That is why you can't separate the liturgy from politics. You can't separate the liturgy from economics. You can't separate the liturgy from sociology, psychology. The liturgy is the heart of it all. The reason why our world is broken is because as Catholics, we've completely severed the two. We come to Mass, we don't really know why. It feels good. Our parent tells us we have to come to Mass. And our parents' parents told us we have to come to Mass, so we do it. But insofar as the impact of Mass on the outside world, zilch. Non-existent. That's why it's so hard sometimes to entice the young to come. They don't see the connection between Mass and their world. The world they live in on a day-to-day -day basis. There's no connection. Okay, I go to Mass, I do that stuff, I listen to the priest, the homily may be good or not. And then I do all this ritual stuff, and I go back to my world, where the really important stuff is going on. See how we have a divorced mentality? We've divorced God from the world. We don't understand the liturgy. Because we don't give God worship. To give Him worship is to say, you are the Lord over the entire world. I come here to make my petitions. You will hear me, and you will act on them. That's the book of Revelation. You will see how in the book of Revelation, constantly, there is an antiphonal song, a new song sung to the Lord, action is taken. The people of the Lord give, give, glorify God, action is taken. We don't do that anymore. I'm hoping that, you're going to hear me repeat this because it's so important for your own life. Never mind the world. Your own life, your family, your petitions. And I'm hoping that it's going to start taking root through the work of the Holy Spirit in your own heart for you to realize the beauty of the church. 
Psalm 132, verse 7 and 8, as an example. Let us enter God's dwelling. Let us worship at God's footstool. Arise, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your majestic ark. Listen to that language. Listen to that language. And think and ask yourself, is that how I'm celebrating Mass? On that day, the root of Jesse, uh, Isaiah 11.10, set up as a signal to, for the nations, the Gentiles shall seek out, for his dwelling shall be glorious. The Gentiles shall seek out. Do you realize that the world is seeking out the church? That's what the world is doing. The world is looking for the church. It is instinctive. Are you a beacon of light pointing to the church? Or are you a scandal? Because the world can't tell the difference between your behavior and the next pagan down the aisle. Those are not trivial questions. Those are at the core of our life. From Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, again, back to the text. We've heard the, the salutation coming from the one who is, who is to come, and from the seven spirits, and now from Jesus, from Jesus Christ. So, in that salutation... <clears throat> This is the second of four times where the expression Jesus Christ is used, only used four times. Which, and four is always that number of universality for the whole world. But beyond that, John will only, will only use the word Jesus, and he'll use it 11 times. Who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth? He chose three attributes of the Lord, and three unusual ones by our standard. The faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Those three are clearly not chosen haphazardly. This is not a random pick. They're chosen very carefully. And there is a sequence. The ordering is there for a very clear reason. Jesus, by his witness, became the firstborn from the dead, and because he was the firstborn from the dead, he gets to rule the nations. Right? That's the sequence. Let's look into it a little bit closely. The faithful witness. We have already spoken of the witness of Christ in the last sec session. We know that Jesus is a witness. We've seen that last time. The question is, why does St. John insert the word faithful? Why does he say faithful? Is it because he's concerned that some people may think that Jesus is an unfaithful witness? Hardly. So then what, what does he say? It seems like a tautology. It seems like it's, it's there, but it's not adding any value. As usual, when you see words like these that seem not to add any value, they are very important. This expression appears here and in 2.13, where it is spoken of Antipas, the faithful witness of Christ. Antipas gave, gave his life for Christ, and he's called a faithful witness. Jesus Christ gave his life, he's called a faithful witness. Is there any reference in the Old and New Testament that can, that can shed light on this? Let's think this way. If Christ is the faithful witness, who is the unfaithful witness? Judas, yes. But before we get to Judas, there's another guy that should come to mind. 
Guy, not spirit. No, not Peter. Adam. Adam. Why Adam? Because Adam was called to give witness. When? When confronted with the temptation, he was called to give witness and be faithful. What is a faithful witness? A faithful witness is not just a witness in court that says, I saw everything. A faithful witness in Hebrew mentality is more than just a witness in court. It is someone who is willing to live by what he saw. Not just profess what he saw, but be faithful to it. Live by it. Adam saw God face to face. God walked with him in the garden. He was called to be faithful witness to the love of God. Was he? He wasn't. As a result of Adam's fall, we end up in the mess that we are in. Here we have the faithful witness. He is the one who passed the test. He is the one who did not fall to the temptation of Satan. Remember the three temptations in the desert? He's the one who won the race. He's the one who testified to the truth of God unto the shedding of his blood. In times of persecution, you think this is important to set Jesus Christ as a model like that? Yes. This is what you and I are all called to do at all times, to be faithful witness of Christ. So Adam is very important. There's also a second one who will loom large as far as I am concerned. It isn't something that is brought up by many commentators, but I think that he plays a major role. Judas. Judas is the unfaithful witness. Why is Judas important? You see, one aspect of this, the interpretation of the book of Revelation has to do with the role that Jerusalem plays in the book. And I think it plays a very important role. Not an exclusive role, but a very important one. At one point, later in the book, if you've read it already, you know that there is Satan that comes down from heaven, and then there is a beast that comes from the sea. To him, power is given. This is obviously Rome. And there's a second beast that comes from the earth which looked like a lamb with two horns. Obviously, a reference to whom? Obviously, a reference to whom? Pardon? Can't be Jesus, right? Because this is another beast that speaks with a deceiving tongue. So it cannot be Jesus. Not in... No. It is, remember the two horns. That's what you have to think about. Who today wear something that looks like two horns? Huh? The Pope and bishops. Bishops. You know, the matter of the bishop, he actually wears the two horns kind of... Um, yeah, sideways. But if you turn it around, you'll see the two horns. Why does he wear two horns? Horn is a sign of power. Bingo. And who had two horns? Moses. Moses. So it's a sign of authority. Who else wore... Where does this hat come from? Did we invent it in the church? Did the Catholic Church invent that big hat? Where does it come from then? 
The temple. Who was that in the temple? Bingo. The high priest. It is the collusion of the high priest with the Roman authority against the Christians. That is something that is seen by many commentators. But what is not seen or forgotten is that the high priest and a Jewish authority would not have been able to lay their hand on Christ if it was for who? A bishop, an apostle. Keep that in mind. It is all about the church. They would not have been able to arrest Christ if one of his own did not betray him. Now, interestingly enough, remember what John, St. John says about Judas in his gospel? Chapter 6, verse 70. Did I not choose you twelve, yet is not one of you a devil? In reference to Judas. And again, in 13.2. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And again, in 13.26-27, we read that when the Lord, having dipped the morsel of bread and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Oftentimes, people read this and they go blip. Satan entered into them, they go blip. Sort of, I don't know what that means, but it certainly not mean what it means, or it sounds like it's meaning. That he entered them. Maybe it's just an expression. Ah, it isn't. John is the one who reports that three times. The beast from the earth and the beast from the sea derives their power from whom? Satan. So we can't just put, lay the blame on the high priest. Ultimately, the blame is from within. Alright? And again, when you start seeing the letters, how Christ is addressing the misconduct of people within the church, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from this is so important. The firstborn, this is so critical for some parts of of, of the Book of Revelation that tend to be very puzzling. In Colossians 1:18, we read that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he himself might be preeminent. This implies that church, that Christ rules the church and governs her. There is also an allusion to Psalm 89. Write this down, Psalm 89. When you go home tonight, read Psalm 89. I don't have time to walk you through it. Otherwise, we'll be with those four verses for the next three talks. So read Psalm 89. I need to point out a couple of things about it. <clears throat> the psalm follows a covenantal lawsuit structure and serves as an outline for what is to come. Especially verses 21 through 38 speaks of the everlasting love and faithfulness of God to the house of David. But in 39:52, it laments the fact that the enemies of God seem to triumph. So there's this structure where first God's love and protection and correction of the house of David is stated, and then there's this lament that says, but the world is triumphing. How could that be? Now, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That means that Christ, the risen Christ, is the head of the church. 
if Christ is the head of the body and Christ is risen, what about the church? Could the church be dead? No. Makes sense, doesn't it? So the church is what? Risen. Risen. Think about it for a second. Think about what I just said. Are we in the church? Yes. What are we then? We're risen from the dead. Now, does that make sense? What do you mean risen from the dead? We're not even dead. Or are we? Or were we? What is the, what is the, does he have in mind physical death? No. Spiritual. So before we were baptized, we were spiritually dead. After our baptism and incorporation into Christ, we are risen. Right? In the book of Revelation, some of you may have already read this. If you haven't, go back and check it out. John speaks of the first resurrection. And then he speaks of a second resurrection. And that confuses people terribly. They think, hmm, there's been one resurrection. I may have missed it. What is the first resurrection he's talking about? It's right here. This is it. This is it. We are part of that first resurrection. The life, the sacramental life in Christ is that first resurrection. That's going to help us resolve so many difficulties surrounding this business of first resurrection. And so St. Paul, for instance, will say in the, to the Colossians, his letter to the Colossians, Christ as firstborn from the dead is the head of the church. The resurrected Christ is the head of the church. All right, so I, I already told you that. In his second letter to Timothy, he instructs Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descendant of David, such is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the points of chain, like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I bear with everything for the sake of those who are chosen so that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus together with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we persevere, we shall also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. If you are unfaithful, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Notice, firstborn from the dead, son of David. What does he do it in this order? What does he mention? Firstborn from the dead, son of David. Firstborn from the dead is the one who brought us victory. What is son of David? What does this give us? Kingship. Kingship. The kingship of Jesus Christ. See how central this idea is to them and how little attention we pay to it? We brought Jesus down from his throne, gave him a guitar, and we're walking on the beach. And then we wonder why our liturgy doesn't have the appeal to the youth. We diluted the truth, we gave them a king that walks on the beach with flip-flops. And we wonder why they're not excited. Look at the way rock and roll concerts are built. How are they built? They're a liturgy. In fact, those who are really seeped into rock and roll admit to the fact that rock and roll is religion. It's a liturgy. And when you look at that stage, are those singers on the stage accessible? Do they look like guys walking on a guitar on a, with flip-flops? What do they portray themselves like? Gods. That's what they do. 
See how we've completely diluted that which should not be and elevated that should, that, that should not be elevated? All right. The ruler of the kings of the earth. This title comes again from Psalm 89, verse 27. That psalm is, is very important in this context. So, he is the ruler of the world, and there is also allusion to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm number 1. Okay, so, read those two. What is interesting is that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, the devil offered the Lord precisely that. All the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all of these if you worship me. And that's what Jesus ended up receiving. To be the ruler of all the kingdoms of the world. He's the ruler of all the kings. You think this is metaphorical? You think this is a metaphor? A nice little cute expression that John is expressing to say how, how God is strong? No? So what is the implication then? Okay. So is he the ruler? Is he the ruler of the President of the United States? Is he the ruler of the government of China? Yes. Yes. Is he the ruler of Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Now you're starting to feel the power of that statement. John made it during a heightened persecution where the emperor was worshipped as God. Starting from Augustus, the name Augustus itself. In fact, the first one was Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was worshipped as God after he died. Augustus did not wait. He was worshipped as God while he was living. And as things progressed, the emperor worship was institutionalized. Rome did not care that Christians adored Christ. They didn't care about that. What they cared for is that they recognize and bow before the statue of the emperor. For, according to a very well-known statement made about Augustus, for there is no other name by which we will be saved than that of Augustus Caesar. That's where Paul coined the expression. For there is no other name by which we will be saved than that of Jesus Christ. Those were very strong political statements. Back then, as they are today, nothing has changed. If Jesus Christ is indeed the ruler of the of the kings of the earth, and if through the liturgy we have access to his throne, what kind of power do you think we have? Think about that for a second. Normally, the ruler of the rulers is inaccessible. Right? When was the last time you were able to meet with with some person who has millions or billions of dollars. Can you go and meet with them anytime you want? Can you do that? Those guys are inaccessible. You can't meet with them. Right? You have to sign your name in blood to get to them. Or you must have something that they really want. Not with Jesus Christ. He's accessible. The liturgy is celebrated everywhere. Do we come to him with our petitions about the rulers of the world? 
Are we connecting our life with his throne? Or they're separate? How many of us are sincerely and stubbornly, very stubbornly, asking for the conversion of Islam? I don't mean a couple of Muslims. I mean all of them. How many of us are asking with certainty? How many? Why? Is it because Christ can't? Haven't we just said he's also the king of all Muslims? He cannot? And if he can, why aren't we asking? Why is he doing it? Because we're not asking. You see? That's what you will find in the book of Revelation constantly. Things, God acts when we ask. But you know what? During his life on earth, what did Christ do when people came to him? What do you wish me to do for you? If they did not ask, he would not have done it. Sometimes he did it on his own. Sometimes moved by pity. But most of the time, they had to come and ask. And they had to say something very specific. Lord, that I may see. Lord, that I may be healed. They had to be very specific in their prayers. Mother Teresa, whenever she would go somewhere where she needed to start a house, would walk around the city, and she'd find the house. And she would say, oh, that's the house we need. She takes a miraculous medal. She throws it in the house. Thank you, Lord, for giving it to me. She's got no money. She has no way to finance it. People will tell her, but mother, this is too expensive. We can't afford it. Oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll get it. And every, no exception, every single time she got it. No exception. That's the house we need. Miraculous medal. Done. She got it. Why can't we pray like this? Why can't we pray like this? Because we don't take our faith seriously. We think we can fix the world by other means. We don't take our faith seriously. We have access to the throne of God like nobody else does. And we are not showing up. He opens the door and there is a no-show. Philippians, St. Paul again, because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the word confess. You confess in the liturgy. You confess God's glory in the liturgy. William Symington points out that the persons who are here supposed to be subject to Christ are kings, civil rulers, supreme and subordinate, all in civil authority, whether in the legislative, judicial, or executive branches of government. Of such, Jesus Christ is the prince, ruler, lord, chief, the first in power, authority, and dominion. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. To him who loves us. So I'm now doing verse 7. We have two more verses to go. The first thing that comes to mind is, that is the first letter of John, chapter 4, 10 and 11. St. John tells us, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also must love one another. 
The fact that Christ loves us implies a moral imperative to love one another. When John says, the one who loves us, there is an implication behind this. The king of the ruler of the earth loves us. Won't we come to him and present our petition with a heart full of faith? It means we have to love one another. We have to love the world so that the world may be saved through Christ. Christ does not love us on a personal, individual basis, but as a worshipping family in the liturgy from which every grace flows. That's the basis of Christ. I'm not saying that Christ doesn't want to have a personal relationship with each one of us. He does, absolutely. Very personal, very intimate. No question about it. But we have to understand that this personal relationship is not set in, in a desert. It is within the context of the family of God. As a member of that family, Christ wants to have a relationship with me. Not just me alone on an island somewhere, disconnected from the rest. So therefore, in, in so much that I have a relationship with Christ, I have to care for my brothers and sisters. That's how I show I have a relationship with Christ. If I am not showing or caring for my brothers and sisters, let me not claim to have a relationship with Christ. And where does this get exercised? You don't have to go to the Sahara or to the North Pole or to Mars or to dig seven, 17 miles under the, the, the surface of the earth. It's called the parish. If you're not involved in the life of your parish, don't tell me you love Christ. I'm sorry. Let me repeat that to you. If you are not involved in the life of your parish, don't tell me you love Christ. That's where your family is. That's where you should be involved. You can be involved in a multitude of ways. If you can't do anything, you're too busy, you have too much on your, you can offer your suffering for your parish. You can pray for those who need prayer. You can visit those who are sick. There's so many things you can do. You must be doing something. Don't treat your parish like a hotel. Show up at Sunday, 10 o'clock, go to Mass, take off. I'm done. Whew, I avoided all these people. And you want to show God's love? Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, I know. We're all sinners. We rub on each other. It's hard to put up with each, each one of us. But that's how, what Christ did. He put up with us. Even unto the cross. What excuse do we have? Pray. Ask God to show you what you can do for your family. Now there could be some circumstances, situation, I'm not debating it, but in general, ask God to show you. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. He uses the word free, not wash. If you have wash, it's a mistranslation. The actual word in, in the scripture is free. Why? Because it brings about two images. Number one, paying the price. Number two, exodus. It's freeing from slavery. It's bringing out of Egypt into world of freedom. That's what the image is, and he used his blood to do so. And he made us a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Notice again the focus on the church. A kingdom and priests. It is liturgical. We are part of the, what we call the common priesthood of Christ. Therefore, we can offer spiritual sacrifice. We can intercede. 
we can ask God to do things for us. That's the gift that he gave us, which was taken away after the Israelites fell in the desert with, uh, with the golden calf. No longer were they be able, able to be priests. Only the Levites were priests. Now, he restored that. That's the general priesthood of the faithful. Separate from the role that priests play during the liturgy. This is a different completely role. But that's a power we have. We exercise it during Mass. But that's the kingdom that he has. It's a kingdom of priests. It's a priestly kingdom. It is a liturgical kingdom. It isn't a kingdom according to the ways of the world. And that's what we have to understand. How can we understand this if we don't have love for the liturgy? Again, you'll hear me repeat this uh, quite a bit because it's very important. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, this business of clouds created so much confusion because the first image that people have being materialistic in our thought is what? Christ sitting on a cloud. A big, fat, white cloud zipping through the sky. Breaking the speed of sound. Maybe shooting laser beams or something. Whenever I hear someone tell me this, I always ask them the question, what kind of cloud is it? I mean, you know, there are different clouds, right? You know, you have the stratus, which are really flat and very high. Then you have the cumulonimbus, which are the rain cloud. Those are the big fat ones, right? And then there is uh, another kind, a third kind that I forget right now. Which kind of cloud? What is the problem here? Problem is the reference, the contextual reference. We think that when they say cloud, they have in mind meteorology, the clouds we see on TV. You think so? Okay. I have here 14 references to the cloud in Scripture. I don't have time to go through all of them. I'm just going to pick a couple. Exodus 16.10. When Aaron announced this to the whole Israelite community, they turned toward the desert, and lo, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 40:38. In the daytime, the cloud of the Lord was seen over the dwelling, whereas at night, fire was seen in the cloud by the whole house of Israel in all the stages of their journey. In Numbers 10:33 through 36, we Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, that your enemies may be scattered, and those who hate you may flee before you. And when it came to rest, he would say, Return, O Lord, you who ride upon the clouds to the troops of Israel. The image of riding upon the cloud is very old. It's very ancient. In the, in the Phoenician uh, um, uh, religion, Baal was known to ride his chariot upon the clouds. Why? Well, they didn't have any planes. Right? Anybody can ride a horse on earth. Nobody can ride up there. Unless you're a god. Get it? Very simple. That imagery was used to indicate that God is the God of hosts. He is the God. And so they translated that and started speaking of God riding on the cloud. But really, cloud, very quickly, became synonymous with what? Spirit. The Spirit. For instance, when St. Gabriel appeared to Our Lady, what does he tell us? What does he tell her? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and 
The power of the Lord will overshadow you. That's the cloud. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have it also, for instance, in, um, in 1, Thess 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17. We read this. For the Lord himself, with the word of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is, by the way, the only basis for the rapture. If you ever heard of the word rapture. If you ever heard of the word rapture, don't worry about it. If you did, that's the only reference in all of Scripture to support the entire rapture theory. Right there. Misunderstanding of meeting the Lord in the clouds. To come in the clouds is to come in the Spirit. All right? <clears throat> We see it also in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 2. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There was no cloud other than the holy cloud, the presence of the Spirit. That's what the cloud is. So the coming in the cloud is also actually... Yeah, I need to quote this. This is used by the Lord himself during, during his, uh, his, uh, uh, his appearance before the Sanhedrin, Matthew 26, 63-65. But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I order you to tell us under oath before the living God whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him in reply, you have said so. That means you are correct. It doesn't mean you said it, but I'm, I'm, I'm not committed to it. You have said so means you got it. Okay? But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is using the same imagery. Did the high priest see Jesus coming on the clouds? On a big, fat, white cloud? No. He didn't. So what does that mean? Did, was the Lord wrong? Did he assume he was going to come on a cloud and he didn't? No. Did he come on the cloud? Did he come in the spirit? Yes, in 70 AD, when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The coming in the spirit means that the Lord enacts judgment that is executed through political, military means. That's what it means. Again, you remember when I told you we've divorced the liturgy from the world? So we cannot give sense to conflict outside? They become absurd. They lose their meaning because they're not connected to the throne of God. When Our Lady in Fatima appeared to the children, what did she tell them? The, the, the Lord will punish the world by means of another war, the Second World War. That was punishment from God. Because we've connected the two, disconnected the two, we can't read the signs anymore. All right, I'll say one more thing and I'll stop. There's no way I can cover everything. Five minutes? Thank you. The last thing I'll point out to you is the <clears throat> two things. 1 Peter 2.59, first letter of St. Peter 2.59. And like living stones, be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Chosen race, 
royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him. The reason why we are all these things, so that we may declare the wonderful deeds of God. We give him glory. In a nutshell, that's the essence of that introduction. It is situating Jesus Christ, it's situating the Trinity and us and our relationship through the liturgy. It is extremely condensed, but if you were used to the liturgy of the temple, if you're used to this imagery, or if you listen to this talk and then sit down and think about it, it'll get clearer and clearer, and eventually it'll become more and more natural. And that means it translates into a change of behavior or disposition towards the liturgy. That's why this book imparts blessing, because of this reason. And so with that, may God bless you, and we will continue next time. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.